Um, did you guys get the books? I, I noticed some of you have a Xerox from um, Tuesday, Justy. Um, I ordered them all. Yeah, I ordered them. It's not here yet. Okay, they are in the bookstore. Well, they're, I, they're, I think I might be there. <laughs> but <laughs> I haven't checked my email since yesterday. Okay, they're, they're definitely in the bookstore. Yeah. But I know that's really 20th century technology, <laughs> last millennium, who does such things. Um, except that, wait? I said half.com. Like you get like 70 cent books. It's great. Um, yeah, I know. Um, but that means that you did or didn't do the reading for today? I did. I found, I found that it was the, um, the, not the anxiety as well. <laughs> <laughs> Like the Woody Allen poem. No, I found I found them online. Okay, <laughs> the Woody Allen poem. The anxieties. No, what are they? The paradox. The paradoxes. The paradoxes. Thank yes. <laughs> okay, that's good because because we'll we will have occasion. I think I hope to talk about them. I hope you like them. They may, um, they would have seemed if you knew the vocabulary a little bit better, seventeenth century vocabulary a little bit better. The paradoxicality of a couple of the paradoxes would have been more obvious. Um, also, if you knew that language better, you would probably be a 17th century person and not so disgusted by Dunn's misogyny. Um, <laughs> but the, his misogyny is, um, n is something we have to talk about. And it's certainly there, but it's not straightforward and not um, necessarily quite what it looks like. Um, so that is something that we'll have to talk about. But let's finish um, talking about. Um, Sonnet uh, 7, um, which if you have the book, um, I'm sorry, not, um, sorry, Sonnet, Sonnet 4 in this version. Um, if you have the book, it's on page 175. It's Sonnet 7 in the version that I handed out, right? Yeah, so I think um, part of it is that there are the textual um, status of Dunn's work is really, really vexed. Um, and Dunn did very little publishing of his poetry in his own life. Um, it circulated in manuscript, and there's um, his poetry being as knotted and um, strange and um, difficult to read as it is, often the punctuation uh, will matter a lot, but because it's circulating in, it's page 175 of the book, um, because it's circulating in manuscript, um, it's, uh, they're just stray ink blotches and um, places that are illegible and so on. Um, so uh, for my money, that's a good thing because it means you don't have to get too fussy about, um, because there's no end to the fussiness because um, textual editing can be infinitely fussy. Um, because textual editors can um, die in the madhouse, um, <laughs> as some of them did. What's the story? There's a madness of conjectural emendation. Yes, and there's the that Dr. Johnson right talks about the madness of conjectural emendation, which reminds me, I have to amend um, a misspeaking, as um, President uh, Reagan's press secretary used to call it, um, that I made on Tuesday, which is that it's Pope of co of course, as I'm sure you all remembered, um, not. Um, Dryden, I'm not sure why I said Dryden, um, who did the satires of Dr. Dunn versified. <coughs> so um, if you're on Quiz Bowl or something, just make sure you say Pope if that's their question and not Dryden. I would hate for you to lose because of a slip of the tongue on my part. Um, so, um, the, uh, but there's a story about the Oxford Classics editor. Um, there was some editor um, 
who who did some some Greek poet, who then towards the end of his life published a poem that he discovered, which turned out to be utterly it was pure madness on his part. He did, he he thought he he hallucinated. Um, on a manuscript, a palimpsest, and he thought he was seeing very, very ghostly letters that had been erased of an ancient Greek poem, and he published it, and people were very excited, although it was a very strange poem, and then he died, and they found the manuscript, and he'd entirely hallucinated it. Um, so you don't want to go down that road, I don't think. Um, and what that means, then, is um, also what Dr. Johnson said, which is that um, basically... Um, all the the minutiae and all the picayune stuff, um, you hit diminishing returns, and um, you can get ninety nine percent of a poem without worrying about the stuff that the textual editors worry about, and because with done there's no end to worry, um, we can just be happy. <laughs> um, so. Um, let's go back to um, what in this edition is Sonnet 4 in the Xerox that I gave you, Sonnet 7. Um, at the, and I'll just read it again. At the round earth's... Hey. Are you taking both classes? Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> at the round earth's imagined corners, blow your trumpets, angels... And arise, arise from death, you numberless infinities of souls, and to your scattered bodies go. All whom the flood did and fire shall o'erthrow, all whom war, dearth, age, agues, tyrannies, despair, law, chance, hath slain. Um, and we talked about the hath there. That is that um, what we're getting is a list of things, but we get a singular verb. Um, and it's as though the singular verb suggests that um, all those things are, are basically the same thing. Um, grammatically, you would say something like um, the notebook, the blue one, is on the table. And even though I'm using two nouns or two noun phrases, the notebook, comma, the blue one, comma, the one with spirals, comma, I use a singular verb because those are, I'm just giving three different names for the same thing. Um, that's called apposition in grammar. Um, and um, that's when um, you explain a noun by simply using, or you explain a word by giving another version of the same thing. Um, he, um, he ran, comma, sprinted, um, comma, to the class because he wanted to hear so much about Dunn. Um, so ran, comma, sprinted. Sprinted is an apposition to ran. Um, so it's as though what Dunn is doing here is he's putting all these things, which are all the various ways that you can die, um, into apposition. Um, so that ultimately they're all one thing. Um, and of course they're not in our world. War, flood is not the same as fire. Um, war is not the same as dearth. Um, if you die in war, you don't live to old age, um, which is another way that you can die. Um, agues and tyrannies are not the same thing. One comes from um, microbes, although he didn't know that. The other comes from kings. Um, Despair, law, chance. Despair would be suicide, probably. Um, law, again, would be execution. But all of them seem ultimately to be chance. 
Um, which of the, um, just thinking of those lines, which of the paradoxes um, seems most applicable to those lines of the three that you read for today? Remember, there's one about women, um, that women actually could be good for you. That's a huge paradox. <laughs> I mean, how could that be, really? Um, there's one about the soul versus the body and which has priority. And there's one about, do you remember what the third one's about? Sorry? Think, yeah, that all things kill themselves, that all things um, tend to um, go towards their own death. Um, so which of the three seems most applicable here? Third. The third of the ones I just listed, yeah. Um, and how do things go towards their own death? What does, um, how does he explain that? Anyone remember? We don't have to spend um, a lot of time remembering, but do you remember it all? Well, for one thing, by perfecting themselves, all things grow. And by growing, they get to what makes them perfect. This is on um, page 14 of the Oxford edition. Um, so all things grow, and they grow towards what's make them, what makes them perfect. Um, the word perfect means finished. Um, literally, it means um, that's what its root meaning is in Latin. Perfectus means done, complete, finished. Um, but if it's finished, then it's no longer growing. It's no longer um, heading upwards. Um, and once it's perfect, it has no place to go but decay and downwards. Um, so the very thing, the paradox is that all things kill themselves um, to affect, yea, to effect their own deaths. All living are importuned. So all living beings are um, somehow um, drawn to, demanded, it is demanded of them that they affect, indeed effect, their own deaths. That they love, the. if you look at those words, it's to affect with an A. Yea, to effect. That is what he's doing there is, again, a kind of apposition. Affect in the 17th century means to love. It survives in our idea of affection. Um, that is, we wouldn't say, oh, I, f I affect you so strongly that I hope um, that you will come to Hawaii with me next week, um, because the person wouldn't, unless they really <laughs> loved 17th century diction. Um, but you would say, as um, Steve McCauley says in the title of a book of his, you're the object of my affection. Um, that is, you're the person that I love. So to affect, to love, yea, to effect, to bring it about, I hope you've all been corrected on the difference between effect and effect in your writing um, and that you no longer make that mistake. Good. Um, to bring it about, all living things are importuned, not only to love their own death, but to cause it to happen, not by nature only, which perfects them, so um, affect, effect, perfect, but by art and education, which perfects her. 
perfects nature. So in every way we're trying to perfect ourselves, um, all living beings are trying to perfect themselves, but once they do that, um, then there's no reason to continue. And in a sense, what he's saying is, and here I'm just going to interpret for you a little bit um, instead of spending a lot of time on this, but what he's saying is, is that to be alive is to, be, is to change, that what life is is change, um, that there's no such thing as a static mode of being, which is actually life. Um, life means moving on. Um, if life is change, then when you achieve the most perfect thing that you can make of yourself, when you change to perfection, when you are completed as a person, then either you'll stop and die, or you'll continue to change, which means that you will change towards the worse. You will have, you'll be at the top of the wheel, and now um, you will go downwards towards death. So the very fact that life is motion, that life is change, um, that life is mutability, as Spencer says, um, means that all things kill themselves because in achieving perfection, they also achieve what's beyond affection. And then um, to give the example that he gives, this is halfway down page 15, or halfway down the paragraph on page 15, um, how shall man be free from this since the first man taught us this except we cannot kill ourselves because he killed us all so Adam and Eve um, put us in this situation where we're always heading towards our own deaths um, but he goes on yet lest something should repair this common ruin so even if here he means even if Christ should come and help us. Nevertheless, look what we're like. We kill daily our body with surfeits and our minds with anguishes. So even if we could find a way through religious faith, religious belief, religious salvation to stay alive, we don't. We kill daily our body with surfeits. Um, we eat too much. We drink too much. We smoke too much although he didn't. Um, we kill daily our body with surfeits and our minds with anguishes. Um, we worry too much. We harass ourselves with anxiety. Of our powers, remembering kills our memory. So we have powers, like the power of remembering. But the more you remember, um, the less you want to remember. The more there is that you want to forget and also the less memory you have left to remember other things. Um, you fill up your memory. Of our powers, remembering kills our memory. Of affections, lusting our lust. So you experience lust, and the result is that you stop experiencing it. Um, that all desires um, are self-limiting. You become jaded. Um, of virtues, giving kills liberality. If you give, if giving, if being generous is a virtue, you give away what you have, and then you can no longer be generous. And if these things kill themselves, they do it in their best and supreme perfection, 
for after perfection immediately follows excess, which changes the natures and the names and makes them not the same thing. Um, so that idea that all things kill themselves, in a sense, that's what you're getting in the list here in um, Sonnet, in At the Round Earth's Imagined Corners, that all will die, and um, it's all ultimately the same thing, even if it's through different pathways. So all of those, all whom chance hath slain, and you, whose eyes shall behold God and never taste death's woe. So you too should um, arise and go to the last judgment. Um, because what will happen according to Revelation? No. 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 Revelation. Um, so you're hissing like Satan. <laughs> um, what will happen according to Revelation is when, when um, the apocalypse comes, some people will be alive and they won't have to die. They can go straight to the last judgment without having died. So you, who will never see, who, um, um, who shall behold God, you whose eyes shall behold God and never taste death's woe, um, those who are around for the last judgment, um, including some of his readers, he's presuming, um, <laughs> All of you should arise and go to the last judgment. So that's the octet. Um, and then we get the turn to the sestet with the word but. But let them sleep, Lord, and me mourn a, pay, a space. So what's changed between the octet and the sestet? First he beckoned them, and then now he's telling them or telling the Lord to let them Yeah, and um, he's also changing his addressee, right? There's you, yeah. whose I shall behold God and never taste death's woe, but now who's he addressing, Justy? God. God, yeah. Um, he's turning away from them. Um, he called them you, you numberless infinities of souls. Um, he talked to the angels, blow your trumpets, angels then turns to the numberless infinities of souls, and then those who will never taste death's woe. But now all those yous become a them. But let them sleep, Lord, and me mourn a space. So why does he change his mind? Well, this isn't really answering that question, but it's very reminiscent of the things in the paradoxes where he switched with his, and, and in sonnet um, 19, where he's switching back in, his inconstancy of being religious and not, and it almost, it, it sort of makes me think of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's certainly um, the same sort of thing he's saying about inconstancy, and um, that that's the one constant is inconstancy. Um, yeah, Taylor. Is he also, um, so in the next line, he says, like, for above all things, my sins abound. So is he kind of asking, like, let these people die because then I have more time to repent? Like, Give himself more time. Yeah. So what, he, so what he's saying is, yeah, let's just read the last six lines. But let them sleep, Lord, and me mourn a space. For if above all these my sins abound, tis late to ask abundance of thy grace when we are there. Here on this lowly ground, 
teach me how to repent, for that's as good as if thou'd sealed my pardon with thy blood. Um, so um, first he's saying, let the apocalypse occur. Um, let it be now. Let it be as soon as possible. And then he changes his mind. No, let them sleep. Don't wake them up. Don't arise from death, you numberless infinities of bodies of souls into your scattered bodies. Go, don't do it. Um, let them sleep, Lord, and me mourn a space. Mourn for what? Yeah, so first and most obviously mourn for his sins. Um, mourn for um, the fact that in some sense he is sinful. What, what generally goes with mourning, though? When we talk about mourning, what death. So um, there's some idea, let them sleep and me mourn a space. Just taking that single line, who would the mourning be for? All the dead. For all the dead. It says he doesn't want to rise anymore. Yeah, that is, <laughs> instead, of, instead of bringing them back to life right away, um, let me mourn for a while. Now, why would he prefer mourning to having them come back to life? I mean, in the context of this sonnet, this is, this is a little bit of a paradox, but not an amazing paradox, but in the context of the sonnet. Yeah? Okay, so if he's mourning them, he still has time to repent. Um, and so um, the space that he's mourning is also the space that gives him that time to repent. Um, why would he want mourning, though? Why, why couldn't it be? I mean, obviously it would be just totally different, but it's worth noticing why it would be totally different if the line were, but let them sleep and me sleep a space as well. That is, you know, why can't we all be asleep, them in death and me in my comfortable bed? Um, why is why would that be wrong? Why is mourn the right word for for what he will do while they're sleeping? Well, he's saying it'll be too late when we are there, assuming the the afterlife, to ask abundance of thy grace. So, I think the the action of mourning. I don't know if I'm reaching here comes from. In tying into repenting has to do with, with appreciating the dead and appreciating life and saying if 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 it's already the end times, if it's already the apocalypse, it's too late not just to repent, but to appreciate repent the consequences of repentance for life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it, it so it might be something like um, if you think about what mourning is, um, I think the way he's using the word is not only, oh, I miss that person so much, which is part of mourning, um, but it's also, oh, how can I live in a world in which people die? Um, that is, that, that part of the experience of mourning is directed towards the person who's gone, and part of it is directed towards the fact that we live in a world of mortality. Um, the fact that um, all persons are gone. So if you ask which of these is more important for his use of the word, I think it's the second. 
That is, he's not saying, oh, I miss all those people from Methuselah to, um, uh, I don't know, to Marlowe, um, who just died. Um, I'm really missing all those people. Um, I think it's more like he's already mourning. Let me mourn some more. And what he's mourning is that we live in a world of flood, fire, war, dearth, age, agues, tyrannies, despair, law. In a word, chance. So he wants time to like accept the world for what it is? Or time to um, regret the world for what it is. Um, that is, to think about this fact some more, not to hurry past it. Not to say, well, that was really bad, but everyone arrives, go to your, go to your scattered bodies, and let's have um, an end to all this. Um, it's rather, it's almost as though what he's, if you ask, why does God kill people? Why does chance kill people? Same question um, for this sonnet. Why does God put us in, in a universe in which chance will inevitably kill people? Um, well, why? <laughs> Let me ask that. I mean, you know, let's start with the easy questions. Why? Why mortality? Yeah, Grace. Such a good, such a good, good line. Why mortality? Grace, please answer that. Um, how does that give meaning to life? Uh, because your actions have consequences and finality. <clears throat> um, you know, if things never die, then nothing you did would have any sort of lasting consequence. Um, okay, well, yeah, there, there's certainly that idea, and the idea of, of um, the ins unsustainability of perfection is a version of that in the, in the um, paradox. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was, was going to say a similar thing. Because, like, in relation to this, I just read a story by um, Borges called The Immortal. And mm -hmm. in it, the, the, like, the people who are immortal, like, they don't, they just, like, sit around in caves by themselves and don't talk. Because mm -hmm. since they live forever, their life has no meaning. So it's like, there's no point of doing anything. Like, they don't even talk. Because it's like, there's no point of trying to figure it out, anything out if you're just going to exist forever in right. an uncertain world. Yeah, and that's that idea of, perf that's again the idea of yeah. perfection from the paradox. That is that um, if, let's say, if the pleasure of life is learning things, um, then once you know everything, there's no pleasure left. Um, and um, that is um, a strange fact. You can think about this on any level. That is, you know, the pleasure of um, watching an action movie um, is, well, once the hero is triumphant, the movie's over and there's no pleasure left. So in a way, you want the hero to be triumphant, but in a way, you don't. You want to put that off. Um, but as a theological question, I think it's actually an interesting one, and um, it seems to have an obvious answer, but maybe doesn't quite, which is why was the fall of Adam and Eve punished by death? Why is death the punishment that we... Um, all undergo because of their sin. That's a good question. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, um, yeah. Well, we were just talking about this in the Western canon, actually. But, um, I mean, the, the, we were talking about the notion that all of the punishment derived from the, not from the fact that they disobeyed God, obeyed God, but by that trying to gain wisdom, they were trying to become like God. They were mm -hmm. trying to become God-like and the other punishments of childbirth and 
labor. Having behind labor, having labor suck, are like the moments when you're creating, <laughs> and are most godlike are the moments where you're going to become most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So, I guess tying into that thing of you not, it's curtailing your your godlikeness to make you be able to live, you know, a purportedly long time but not forever. Okay, so. But there, I think maybe you're you're putting your finger on a problem, but also smudging it as you put your finger on it, <laughs> to use my own little metaphysical conceit, um, which is that there's there are um, several punishments denounced on Adam and Eve. One is that before they eat the fruit, they're told that they will die in the day they eat thereof, and so they eat the fruit, and now they're worried that they're going to die. Um, but then God puts it off, and he says, well, actually, I'm going to punish you in other ways first. Um, and these other punishments are both um, a kind of tempering of the punishment of death, because you won't die immediately, um, so it won't be quite that bad. Um, you will die, um, but you can put it off for a while. Um, and Adam and Eve are very relieved by that, or at least we think they're very relieved by it, um, looking at our own experience. Um, but while you're alive, you're going to be punished, you, Adam, by having to um, get bread by the sweat of your brow. And if you look at, um, there are a whole lot of creation myths or origin of humanity myths um, from all sorts of different cultures, which really interestingly tell the story of why we have to work to live. That is, um, this idea that um, staying alive actually is difficult and painful. Um, that's something that lots of cultures um, want to come up, uh, want to explain. Um, why, where does work come from? Um, why do we have to work? Um, it doesn't seem to us like that's the first question that um, anyone would ask, but in fact, culturally, it does seem to be one of the first questions um, that cultures explain to themselves. Um, why labor? Um, and then, yeah, and, and women, because of Eve's sin, are going to be punished by the pain of labor um, and will give, um, will give birth in suffering. So um, now those are punishments that we understand. Those are punishments like being whipped. Um, or our idea of punishment is the idea of causing pain. But then there's this other punishment, which is also you'll die. Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Um, and that's a different sort of punishment. And Dunn is emphasizing the difference when he calls death sleep. That is that death is not here what it will be in um, uh, Christian theology, a place of unending pain if you go to hell. Um, but rather, these people whom he's mourning for are asleep. They're not suffering. Perhaps they will suffer at some point, but at, at this point they're not suffering. So why is that a consequence <coughs> of sin? Why is, I mean, why labor? Why pain? Why bruising of your heel? which is the other punishment that the snake will bruise your heel. Why that's a punishment for sin, you know, that's like other punishments. Um, you know, that's like being whipped or spanked or whatever, or being sent to your room without your supper, um, and then coming back and finding it still warm. Um, but why death?
<laughs> Professor Quinney. Yeah, I'm going to be the straight man here. Um, because I know what the conventional, I, I think I know what a conventional explanation would be. And so you must have a more interesting one. So I'm going to be the straight man and say what the conventional explanation would be. I mean, I understand how later theology makes sense of the punishment of death. Um, and it, it is um, because of the idea that Adam's sin caused the nature of man to be permanently perverse. In other words, that we fall. Um, that, that human beings after Adam are all um, um, tempted to sin. Um, and so the fact that our lives, uh, that we're mortal in their, our lives, have a limited life, you know, have a, have a limited span, means that then that limited lifespan can be treated as um, a time of trial. So you're born with a <coughs> sinful nature, but you have a chance while you're living to redeem yourself. And um, death uh, makes sense in that explanation because you don't have an unlimited time to redeem yourself. Because then what would redemption mean? We could just put it off. <laughs> right? Um, and that's, I mean, that's important in the Dunn sonnet. So that's an explanation of death in which it's in which it's not exactly a punishment. It's part of a new dispensation um, in which each human being has got a time of trial in which to redeem themselves, and it's a limited time. Okay, so so their death isn't punishment, but their death is is um, um, yeah, it's a trial period. Yeah, it's part of a system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think that's that's really important to the to the idea of repentance and reward in the afterlife, um, but I don't think that's what Dunn is meaning by the word mourn, um, and I think um, I mean I don't think it's inconsistent with that, but I think that what he's um, um, just getting here is that. Um, a simple idea, which is that the fact that we're going to die makes us sad. Um, so the punishment is not like labor and like um, childbirth and like being snake bit. Um, pain in the present, but rather um, anticipation of the transience that we experience. Um, and that transience is something that we see all around us when others die. That is, um, we see people, but their lives are transient. And so mourning is mourning for the dead, not because of what they're experiencing, but because their lives were short, because chance overthrew them, um, and because they're gone, and because the world, the <coughs> fallen world, is a world in which people go in which people disappear. And so mourning, and I think maybe this is consistent with what you just said, so that, um, or a version of what you just said, so that mourning is um, the right sense of the world we live in, the attitude towards the world we live in. When, we're, when we have the attitude that God wants us to have is an attitude of mourning. So mourning is um, what you should feel 
as a human, as a sinful human being. Um, what you should feel is the experience of mourning. Um, mourning the dead, um, but mourning also the fact that they were people who would die when they were alive, that their experience of life was that they would die. Um, and that knowing that you'll die, um, knowing that um, this won't last, that life is mourning. That's what mourning is, is knowing that life is mourning. Um, there's a kind of circuit there where to know that life is mourning is what it means to mourn. I was just to say, so it's an existential punishment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's also an existential virtue. That is, a failure to mourn um, would be something like, that's what sin is, is not mourning um, what life is like, but simply trying to have as much fun as you possibly can. Um, and um, when he says, but let them sleep and me mourn a space for if above all these my sins abound, who are these? The people. The souls. Yeah, the souls who are dead. So if above all these my sins abound, if I'm more sinful than the rest of the dead human beings. Um, so here what you feel is um, avert his own sense of his sinfulness, which is, um, we talked very briefly on Tuesday about uh, contrition versus remorse, remember? Um, so his own sense of remorse, I'm worse than anyone. Above all these, my sins abound. Although there's a little joke on in the word above as well, which is what? They're underground? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was too simple. Like, I know, it does seem too simple, but yeah. it's there. They're not sinning anymore, they're asleep. Oh, yeah. Whereas I am above all these because they're in their graves, but I'm still um, in life. So... Obviously, it means mostly I, um, well, it, but in a sense, those are the same thing. That is, my sins abound because I'm still sinning, which means that I'm more sinful than they are who are asleep. Um, and so I am more sinful above all these, my sins abound. Um, but also, my sins are above their sins because I am above them. Um, so, for if above all these, my sins abound, tis late to ask abundance of thy grace when we are there, um, when we are where? Yeah. So then it would be a little bit late um, for me to say, yeah. You know, my, I, I, I didn't mean it. Um, let, let me take my life back. Um, I, I, I actually, I, I, I didn't mean that. Um, so the point is to um, do it now when you don't have to do it. Um, because if you wait till you have to do it, it'll be too late. Um, what do you think of the present tense there, tis late? What would it be um, grammatically? It's going to be too late. Yeah, yeah. For if above all these my sins abound, twill be too late to ask abundance of thy grace. Doesn't work metrically. Um, but he could make it work metrically if he wanted to. Um, plus meter was like one of the last things that Dunn worked on. Um, I mean, his meter is great, but he also is um, 
will make his poems as clotted and as impacted as he needs them to be to say what he wants to say. Um, but um, what's the effect there? Uh, maybe, I don't, I might be reaching too, but he might be saying, like, judgment is always happening. Okay, like, judge Like, the last judgment is, like, kind of eternally the present, because mm-hmm. the whole life is its judgment. Yeah. So it's late right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and notice it's when we are there, not when we will be there. Um, so our first paraphrase of this would be something like, it would be late to ask abundance of thy grace when we get there. Um, when we'll be there, it'll be too late. Um, our second paraphrase might be, it'll be too late to ask abundance of thy grace when we're there, because that's how we use um, um, a present tense, like, you know, um, when we're there, you can have some ice cream. Um, and even though we're using the present tense, we're talking about the future. That's actually a fact about the English language, those of you who know other languages. English technically doesn't have a future tense. You know how you're sometimes told Hebrew only has two tenses or Greek doesn't have um, a certain kind of past tense. Um, if you think that's weird, um, you should know that French does have a future tense, but English doesn't. Um, English uses a present tense form for the future. Um, so if you say, I will um, come to every class this semester, that's actually a present tense assertion, namely, I will. Will is a present tense verb there. Um, and Or I am going to um, buy the book um, so that I don't fall behind. That's a present tense um, thing that you're saying, I am going. Um, so the R in when we are there, that's not an issue. Um, that's uh, standard for how we talk about future time in English. But the tis late rather than twill be late, um, that is a little bit unexpected, like the hath in um, despair, law, chance, hath slain. Um, what's the effect then if you just read lines 10 and 11? For if, if above all these my sins abound, tis late to ask abundance of thy grace. How many of you were surprised that it went on? Yeah. This is kind of saying, um, oh, but crap, like, I guess, I guess I just realized that I'm just a sinful, but uh, it's already late now that I realize it. Like, it's... Yeah. Yeah. He's saying it's late right now. Um, and then he's also saying, there, I think there's a surprise. It's almost, there's the comma after grace, um, which really makes you pause there. Um, the comma there, since now we will get a little bit into minutiae of, of punctuation, um, it's really only in the 20th century that punctuation marks were used only um, um, cognitively, that is only for purposes of meaning, rather than um, to indicate pauses. Um, if you read, um, even if you read Jane Austen, you'll see she'll put in a comma um, wherever she just wants a pause in flow. Um, even if it's not a pause in meaning. And um, the earlier you get in English literature, the more punctuation marks will be used rhetorically rather than simply syntactically um, or semantically. Uh, yeah? Can I just say, when I was in first grade, I would write just like Jane Austen. I would put commas <laughs> wherever I wanted that break and flow, and I was totally shut down. I was totally wrong. Mm-hmm. Follow all the rules. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and now what you would say is leave, period, me, period, alone <laughs> with your grammatical rules. Um, so, but that, that um, period, period, period construction that um, you get in scripts um, and on the internet, that's, that's actually going back to rhetorical use of punctuation marks. And Dunn is very much doing that. That is to say, there's no, um, it's, it's simply wrong from a purely grammatical point of view to have a comma after grace when what he wants to say is tis late to ask abundance of thy grace when we are there. Um, if, this, if you were to take this as entirely syntactic, the when would have to be interpreted as since. That is, um, you know, it's a little bit late to um, be asking for an extension when the paper was due yesterday doesn't mean that you were asking an extension, asking for an extension yesterday when the paper was due. It means here you are today asking for an extension, but the paper was due yesterday, so it's a little bit late. So you can see that if you put a comma before a when, that tends in modern English to turn the when into a since, right? Is that clear to everyone? Um, so he sort of wants a little bit of that to happen. That is, yeah, we are there. That would be the real present tense of the are. Tis late to ask abundance of thy grace when we are there. You know, it is late. We're there already. Um, but that's really that, that the, the um, stronger meaning here. Again, he wants both overtones, but the stronger, the dominant meaning here is it will be too late when we are there. Um, but the comma means that lateness is affecting the lateness right now. And what else does the word late do when people are asleep? It jars them awake. I don't, uh, oh, so like, you know, it's, it's already 1.20 and you're coming into class now? Well, I, you know, slept a little bit too late. Um, no, I think this is the lateness of nighttime. That is... So he and God are alone. He's talking to God. Everyone else is asleep. Um, are you there, God? It's me, John Dunn. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you have to see this lateness as very, very late at night. Um, and everyone else is asleep. It gives a kind of hush to the poem, um, which is, again, something that happens in that turn from the first eight lines. Blow the trumpets now, everyone. Arise, arise. But it doesn't feel like morning in the universe. It feels like, you know, it's, it's, it's horror and terror and people being awakened um, like a thief, by a thief in the night, like a thief in the night, in the middle of the night, in order to confront their fates. Um, this is the gods, angels raiding your house at 4 AM. Um, but then it's no, let them sleep. Um, and me mourn a space, for if above all these my sins abound, tis late to ask abundance of thy grace. And there you get this amazing shift, I think, just beautiful and amazing shift into a, from, from a hortatory, do this now, do it now, to a meditative tone. It's late at night, everyone else is asleep, and I'm talking to God. And I'm saying it's late, but I have to ask abundance of thy grace. And then it turns out that with the enjambment, 
um, that the comma tricks you into not expecting um, makes you pause because he really wants you to pause at the end of that line. With the enjambment that the comma tricks you into not expecting, um, he means it'll be too late when we're there. But now, here, on this lowly ground, so this ground which isn't holy, this ground which is just a normal place in the world, here on this lowly ground, but it's also that you should make yourself lowly, you should be humble when you pray. Here on this lowly ground, teach me how to repent. So he's praying, and this is going to be crucial for a lot of um, the poems we're reading. He is praying for God to teach him to pray, you could say. Um, repentance takes the form of a prayer to be able to repent, a prayer to know how to repent. So the beginning of repentance is praying to God that he will teach you how to repent. And you'll see that over and over again, um, that a desire or um, a petition to God, you'll see it over and over again in, the, in um, the metaphysical poets in particular, that the petition to God to help you is the beginning of the help that he's giving you. That the very fact that you're doing that comes from God. And if you want that to be the case, if you want God to um, help you want God, um, that wanting God to help you want God comes from God. But you still have to want it. Somehow your will has to still want the very thing that um, whose wanting is coming from God. Complicated or dense or paradoxical, but a lot of, you'll see this play out a lot, and I think it'll be, um, it'll come clearer. So teach me how to repent, for that's as good, if you were to do that, that's as good as if thou'd sealed my pardon with thy blood. Um, so what does that last line mean, as if thou had sealed my pardon with thy blood? you say God's guidance is just as good as God's forgiveness? Okay, so God's guidance, yeah, is just as good as God's forgiveness, exactly. That um, if you teach me how to repent, um, you know, part of, again, what you have is, um, you know, consider it as good, as, good as, as, as finished. That is, you know, just the modern colloquial, but for done, it's the same thing. You know, it's as good as sold, or, you know, it's as good as, um, um, as completed. Um, that is, it's a way of saying don't worry. Um, so if you teach me how to repent, then I'm as good as saved, um, is what he's saying. Um, yeah? I think it almost says that, like, God is the perfect teacher as well, because if the learning to repent is in the, the source of that is going to be from God, then surely that learning will be the best learning that will guarantee pardon. Uh-huh. Okay. Good. Yeah. It's yeah, also Justy. very reminiscent of Christ sealed with thy blood, which was, you know, the blood used to redeem all of humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the way Christ pardoned us, according to um, the Christian view of redemption, which um, we'll be spending a fair amount of time on inevitably, um, is through um, the 
through the crucifixion of Jesus. So the idea is, um, this is the idea in Paradise Lost, and we won't actually look at this part of Paradise Lost, um, but it's um, made very explicitly there, um, so that gives you a good sense of the 17th century uh, theology, is that um, Adam and Eve sin. Um, they've been told that if they sin, they will die. Um, death, therefore, really is a punishment for sin. And from God's point of view, not from the human point of view, at least not the way Dunn is thinking it, um, because, for, because that question that we just raised, how is death a punishment, that is a hard question to see how death is a punishment. But it's not a hard question if you're on the punishing side. You know, if you're pro-death penalty, it seems obvious. Um, you know, there's that guy who, uh, who um, was executed a couple of nights ago, and it turned out that they just had no idea about, they were using a new cocktail of drugs because um, the European suppliers of the standard lethal injection drugs wouldn't supply them anymore. Um, so the state of Ohio said, well, this should work. Um, and it turned out it didn't. Um, and it was really horrific. And so if you go to the New York Times website, you will see in the comments people arguing about whether it's a good or a bad thing that this person had such a terrible death. Um, and, um, but those who think it's a good thing that the death was terrible um, think, yeah, the pain matters also. Um, and um, from the point of view of punishers, um, killing someone who's really, really heinous feels like punishment. Um, that's the point of view that you get in book three of Paradise Lost. That is, Adam and Eve are told that if they eat the fruit, they will die. That's their punishment. Um, we, we talk about pain of death as um, um, legally, that's the death penalty. Is you know, um, If you fall asleep as a sentry, do not fall asleep um, if you are assigned to be, if you're assigned to sentry duty on pain of death. That would be a standard thing um, to say in military parlance. Um, and the pain there is what matters. Um, that is, yeah, painful thing. Um, but um, what God says in Paradise Lost is they've committed the crime and there has to be punishment. Humans have to be punished for what they've done. Um, and that punishment won't um, get rid of the crime. They can't, it can't get rid of the crime. All it can do is punish it. But so how will they ever be saved, God says. The only way is if um, someone agrees to take that punishment for humans. Um, someone else agrees to be punished um, and pay the debt of death. Um, and debt and death, um, that's a pun that Shakespeare makes, thou owest God a debt, says um, um, Hal to Falstaff. Um, and the pronunciation was actually closer. Um, the th that we say is, is less so in Shakespeare's um, day. So um, that's a real pun for Shakespeare. Um, just so you know how you spell murder in Shakespearean plays? It's M-U-R-T-H-E-R because it's pronounced the same way as murder, even though it's spelled murther. Um, so that owes God a debt is you, the debt you owe to God is your own death. Um, but then um, it's not like you'll, you'll be ahead of the game when you die. So how do humans get to be ahead of the game and get eternal life? Well, someone who doesn't owe God a death has to pay the debt for us. Who is that person? A perfect being. What perfect being is there? 
God. We already know that from Dunn's paradoxes. Um, what per perfect being is there? God. So who can die to um, pay our debt for us? Who has enough um, perfection, enough innocence to pay our debt for us? God. Um, how will God do that? Well, luckily, God is three persons, not just <laughs> one. And so one of those persons will become a human being and will live a human life, but a perfect human life, an unsinful, an unsinful human life, and then will die in the worst possible manner. And by doing that, in that bloody and terrible manner, um, that human being will pay our debt. Um, and the word that's used is redeem, the way you redeem soft drink bottles. That is, no, it is, it's an economic word. Um, so redemption um, is very much an economic word in theology. It means paying a debt. Um, the way, I mean, when you redeem soft drink bottles, what's happened is you put a deposit down, and now you get the deposit back by returning the bottle. Um, in the same way, we get the chance for eternal life back because Jesus has redeemed us by paying our debt, by returning um, what we owe to God through his own dying. So that's sealing our pardon with his blood. That is, it's as though the seal, he writes a pardon out for us and seals it the way you seal official documents. And instead of using wax, he uses blood. That is the blood of his own crucifixion um, to pardon us. Um, so that's the, I mean, that's the background that Dunn assumes is, is um, really, really deep in all his readers. Yeah. Um, well, so there's um, Paradise Lost goes um, um, on at some length about the logic, but the idea would be something like this: that that um, you sin and you have to die, and um, when you die, things will be even, which is you will have gone from non-existence to non-existence. Um, and what that then means is that there's no way that you can do enough um, to get life once you've sinned. Um, if the punishment for sin is death, then um, the best you can do is die and no longer exist, and then everything is even. Um, so God gave you this gift, life. You sinned. Now you're going to die, and that's that. But if you want more than that, if you want to keep living, even paying for your life, paying with your life, isn't enough to get more than your single three score and ten. Um, to get more than that, someone else has to pay um, because you give your whole life to God, and the result of giving your whole life to God is you're dead. God takes your life. It, again, in the colloquial sense, takes your life and you're gone. Um, so how do you get beyond that once you've sinned? Someone else has to pay. Who pays? Um, someone who hasn't sinned, therefore doesn't have to give up their, li their life, but does. Who is that? Well, the only non-sinful being 
created being in the universe, and this isn't quite the way Dunn puts it, but it is the way Milton puts it. This, there's a theological argument about whether the Son of God is a created being or not, but the only non-sinful created being in the universe is Jesus. So he's the one who pays for you with his life. Um, and now God owes humanity, because Jesus is a human, God owes humanity um, something beyond just canceling all debts. Now God is the one who has to give us more because Jesus did this for us. And what he gives us more of is eternal life. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I don't know how into theology you want to get, but I thought of this, so I'm going to ask it anyways. But if, um, if Jesus is God, then isn't him sending Jesus down doing that almost like frivolous, he might as well have just forgiven us. It's like, to take the bottle <laughs> metaphor, it's like, if someone, yeah, the people that want the bottles yeah. give you the bottles, and then you give them back, and they give you money for them. Yeah. It's almost like pointless. Well, you know, interestingly enough, you're, you're actually asking an economic question. Um, <laughs> it is a theological, no, it is a really, the- it's a very interesting theological question, but it's also, it turns out that um, economically, um, all cultures have discovered this. All not completely subsistence cultures have discovered this. Um, that it's much better um, to run a society, which is to say to keep a society obedient and in line, to give people money and to tax them than um, not to give them money at all. So the um, it turns out that if you look at... Um, the history of so-called primitive economics all over the world, in China, um, in the Amazon, in Egypt, in Europe, in um, um, Africa, in um, Asia Minor, and so on, over and over and over again, um, money has been discovered as a human possibility. That is independently discovered as a human possibility. And it's been discovered through the form of creating something called money giving it to people, and then taxing them. And if you do that, they will work for you. And if you don't do that, they won't work for you. So, but it's also the way games work. You know, just think of Monopoly, where you're given money, and if you're not given money, you can't play the game. But that's actually how all societies, um, economic societies, work. Um, So something like that is going on here as well, which is to get us committed to God we have to owe him something. And when it's paid, we have, we're nevertheless um, connected by the lines of owing and payment, um, forgiveness of debt rather than indifference to debt. So the very idea of forgiveness of debt, which is an economic <clears throat> term, but the word forgive there is, is a really important word. Um, the very idea of forgiveness of debt um, is an idea of um, gratitude and connection. So if God said, you know, oh, don't worry about it, we wouldn't feel grateful. But if God said, look, you know, this hurts me more than it hurts you, and can convince us that it does, then we do feel grateful. So I think that's that's the basic yeah. psychological idea behind the theology. Um, yeah, Hunt. I'm just wondering if there's kind of a, a tougher read of the ending of the poem um, that's available to us because it seems like the speakers, by the speaker putting his repentance on par with the atonement, that seems like a ship that's kind of sailing kind of close to blasphemous shores. And I don't know if 
you know, how, how reasonable that, um, that argument is. But, um, well, yeah. I mean, it's there, and maybe we should look at the Herbert poem Redemption, um, which I also, so that we can finally finish Tuesday's class. Um, <laughs> um, but I think it really matters that he's saying, teach me how to repent. Um, and um, maybe a way to, to say that is that um, we would think, and Dunn is always doing this. I mean, we've already seen him doing this. Dunn is always doing this. We would think that um, in normal interaction, in normal language, um, to say, that's as good as if thou hadst sealed my pardon with thy blood, you know, that's like um, probably a reference to the Faustus story. That is, that Faust or Faustus seals his compact with the devil with his blood. Um, that is, I don't mean a reference, but an echo of it. So the idea is that if you, or just being blood brothers with someone or signing an oath with your blood, in all those cases, that looks like it's really, really serious if you do it with your blood. And it looks like the meaning here is, as, as you're saying, God was really, really serious because he sealed his pardon with his blood. Um, but I think what Dunn is doing is actually making us think, no, it's the emphasis here should be, that's as good as if thou had sealed my pardon with thy blood. That is, we already know that he's bled <coughs> for people, that he's done something with his blood, that his blood has flowed. And now the question is why? Well, that's as good as if the reason your blood was there was to seal my pardon. Yeah. What, is your hand up? Okay. So do you see there's a, it's a difference in emphasis, in emphasis, <laughs> a difference in emphasis. Um, it's a difference in emphasis. And Dunn is always making you rethink the emphases. Um, I mean, that's what he does, is to make you rethink the emphases. And that's what, that's what thinking in this poem is about, is rethinking, or in Latin, re... Cogitare? No. <laughs> Repent. Yes, repenting, um, which also means to think. Um, so to repent literally means to rethink, um, to think again. Also to think against, um, to think against what you did before. Um, so just so you know, because this is um, something that poets use and writers use over and over and over again, in English as in German, um, the word for doing something again, or the prefix like re, will frequently also mean to do something against. That is, the, our word again and our word against, they're actually the same word. We think of them as not at all the same word and just a little bit confusing, um, that they look like each other. But in fact, they don't only look like each other. Um, they come from the same root. In German, it's wieder and weiter. Um, one means again and one means against. And again, they come from the same root. In Latin, as in English, re, like revenge or retribution, um, can mean both against and again. To do it again, but generally means to do it again because you're going against the first doing of it. 
So re really has both those ideas. Um, to do something again because the first time is you're now going to go against the first version of it. Um, and that's, that's um, an important part of the deep, deep sense of what happens in um, words with re in them, like, like retribution, as I say, or like revenge. Um, you know, when you take revenge on something, you're not venge avenging yourself on them again. It is you are doing to them what they did to you. So, so the re there is you do the same thing, but against them. Um, so repent is the same thing. It's your thinking again, but also against your previous thought. Um, it's not only that I wish I did, I'm now going to think about how I wish I didn't do it. You're also thinking about how I am thinking differently from the thoughts that, um, that I had when I did do it. Um, so teach me how to repent, how to think again. For that's as good as if thou had sealed my pardon. That is, if you rethink the line, it's now, that's as good as thou sealed my pardon with thy blood. So if I mourn, if in mourning I repent, and does he repent in this sonnet? No. I think so. Where? That would be a way of saying yes, no. Yeah. Okay. So that's repentance. In he knows that of himself. If above all these my sins abound, I feel like I'm worse than any of these people. Um, but also, repenting means changing the direction of your thought. Um, so when does he do that? But yeah. So in a sense, the sonnet is a sonnet of repentance because it um, realizes that it needs to repent, that he needs to repent. So the first eight lines, he's calling for the last judgment. He really wants this to happen. And then the last six, no, wait. Let me rethink that. But let them sleep. And that's rethinking and thinking against his first impulse. And that's the beginning of the repentance, which is the repentance that you're talking about, the repentance of look at all the sins I've committed. Now notice that the reason, this is the last thing I want to say about the sonnet, then maybe we can spend five minutes on redemption. Um, redemption, buying back and buying against. Um, the reason he wants the last judgment to come is because this life is so terrible. It's a life in which there's flood and fire and war and dearth and age and agues and tyrannies and despair and law and chance. That is, look at this life. It's awful. And then the repentance is, no, it is awful, but let me stay here a while longer to repent, even though this life is awful. So that's embracing the, t the temporary life that you're given as an opportunity to repent. So that's, again, a way of bringing those things together. Yeah. I'm reminded of um, uh, Groundhog Day. <laughs> yes. But it's yeah. like the, the idea that temporality, you know, occasions an ethical response. Like, you know, you know that nice. awareness. Yeah. Um, 
that's probably as much I should say about a background. <laughs> no, it's true. Or eternal sunshine of the spotless mind to bring oh, yeah. everything together. Um, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, and um, of course, the groundhog comes from underground. I think we've got it. <laughs> oh my God! Wow! Finally, something really cool <laughs> done. Well, I don't know, but whoa. <laughs> Punxsutawney Phil coming from <laughs> underground into the light and saying, ah, above all these, my shadow abounds. Um, all right, let's look at redemption. Um, so Herbert very much, um, as I mentioned on um, Tuesday, um, admired Dunn, um, wrote in um, the school that Dunn pretty much invented. Um, Herbert, some people, and I, I'm not sure I am such a person, but um, I, I might be. Some people think Herbert is the greater poet, um, and that's saying a lot. Um, so I'm not sure that's true, but um, I think Herbert certainly um, um, is up there with Dunn. Um, his voice is much more humble on the whole than Dunn's. Um, he tends to write in a very, very humble voice. Occasionally not, um, but then when he's not humble, he gets humiliated in his poems. Um, there's a great poem, The Collar, which begins, I cried and struck the board, no more, I will abroad. Um, but at the end, he realizes, um, no, he won't. Um, so, Redemption, does someone want to read it? Go ahead. You can, you can be our designated reader when no one else um, raises their hands. But remember, it'll help you great. Yeah, Jesse. Redemption. Having been tenant long to a rich lord, not thriving, I resolved to be bold and make a suit unto him to afford a new small rented lease and cancel the old. In heaven at his manor I him sought. They told me there that he was lately gone about some land which he had dearly bought long since on earth to take possession. Possession. It's the same same thing as last Possession. time. There's no E to clue me in here, though. It's just the way they spell it. I straight returned, and knowing his great birth, sought him accordingly in great resorts, in cities, theaters, gardens, parks, and courts. At length I heard a ragged noise and mirth. Of thieves and murderers there I him espied, who straight your suit is granted, said, and died. Thank you. Um, notice it's a Shakespearean sonnet? Good. Yeah, so it's a sonnet, but in this case, um, and unusually for sonnets in English, a Shakespearean sonnet, three quatrains and a couplet. Um, so who's the rich lord? God. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> nice. And um, what, um, how did he dearly buy this land on earth? So metaphorically, if you say that someone is paid dearly for their um, misjudgment, what do you generally mean? They're suffering for it. Yeah, that they suffered. Um, that is, it's a standard metaphor for suffering. You know, you've paid really dearly for it. So what what is dearly bought here? What does that refer to? You suffered for it. Yeah, and what's suffering? Christ's death. Yeah, so this is the crucifixion. So dearly bought there means the crucifixion. So just... Um, we only have three minutes, but so having been long, having been tenant long to a rich lord, so he's rich. Well, he owns the universe. He's God. Um, 
not thriving. Who's not thriving? The speaker. The speaker, yeah. You can say Herbert. Um, it's uh, generally, I'm not against using the poet's name unless it's clear that you shouldn't. Um, so this is Herbert, but not the actual George Herbert, but Herbert who's thinking of himself as the speaker of this poem. Um, so having been tenant long to a rich lord, but I wasn't thriving, I resolved to be bold. I thought I'd go see him about this and make a suit unto him to afford a new small rented lease and cancel the old. So I wanted him to change the terms of the lease. Um, lease on what? Life. Yes, good. A new lease on life. Um, and cancel the old. So what would the old be here? Mortality. Mortality, but also literary, um, sorry, uh, more specifically, new versus old means what in Christian theology? The new... What? Yes. Yeah, or the New Covenant. Yeah, so the idea of the New Testament is that the Mosaic Law was too hard. Um, the, that people tried to fulfill the Mosaic Law and it was too hard and they couldn't help sinning and breaking it. And then Jesus came and he said, um, no, I'm going to give you a new covenant, a new deal with God. You know, when Roosevelt talks about the new deal, he's actually thinking of that. Mm -hmm. um, a new deal with God, which is going to be easier for you because you can't possibly fulfill the ruinous terms of the old one. Um, so that's, I mean, Jesus is very specific about this, or St. Paul is very specific about um, this is what Christianity is offering. So that's what Herbert is referring to. We will pick it up here. Um, and uh, what I would say is we're going to spend probably the next two weeks on the songs and sonnets, or at least the next week and a half. So read through all the songs and sonnets. Um, that is the book, the manuscript, the collection within the Dunn called Songs and Sonnets, and we'll talk about those. Um, yeah? Is this book? Yes. Right, yes. Okay, have a good weekend. Whether your Sabbath is Saturday, as in the old lease, or Sunday, as in the new, it's still the weekend. That's the New Deal version. What about all the pagans? Yeah.